Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staber. Finding a home is getting harder in central Ohio. Rents are rising year after year. Home prices remain at record highs. And Columbus says builders are tens of thousands of units behind demands for market rate properties, let alone those for lower income residents. Enter the tiny house. Tiny home communities are popping up in Newark, Toledo, and here in Columbus. These neighborhoods of pint-sized dwellings are part of a plan for people who face barriers to home ownership. Over the next hour, we're talking tiny homes, from the challenges and where to place them, to whether they can really help address the housing shortage. Joining me now to kick off the conversation is Salim Firth, a senior research fellow at George Mason University who studies housing and land use regulation. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you, Anna. It's great to be here. Let's start with some basic definitions. First, how do we define affordable housing? Well, there's two affordables. There's lowercase affordable and uppercase. Lowercase just means you can afford it or it's it's pretty cheap. Uh, uppercase affordable means there's a deed restriction that says that the, the owner of the property has to rent it or occasionally sell it to someone who has an income that qualifies and there's different income bands. So that's what I call capital A affordable housing. And when it comes to lower A affordable housing, there's this rule, right, that you shouldn't be spending more than 30% of your gross income on your housing. Yeah, I, I don't think that's a hard and fast rule. When we look at a big population, if we see a lot of people spending more than 30%, we say, ah, that's a problem. If you look at some individual cases, you might be a retiree, your income is very low, but you own your own house, you're spending you know, more than 30%, but that's because you've got wealth. Um, that's not a problem. Or you're a student, you have hardly any income. Um, that's fine, you're, you're just in a life transition. So I, I think of that as a useful measure for a population, not so useful for an individual. So then uh, are you aware of this new report from the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies? Because it found that half of American renters are spending more than 30% of their income on housing and of those households, 12 million of them had costs that ate up more than 50% of their income. And it's kind of crazy to think that like you might be spending more than 50% of your take-home pay just on your housing. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, that's, that's become a massive problem in especially the highest wage cities in the U.S. So if you think about someone graduating from Ohio State this year, they're looking at job offers around the country, right? It's a very successful, smart young person. If they move to New York or San Francisco, they're looking at rents that eat up all of the gains that they would get versus going to a place where they're less productive and their wages are lower. So it's a real problem for upward mobility, for kind of all of us being able to get the best job for ourselves and for many people to even just live near their families. If your family's in a high cost city, it's a real struggle to find housing, maybe in the town you grew up in. Yeah. And you would think as so Columbus has become increasingly more expensive as a place to live, we're sort of grappling with that, not to the same extent that like San Francisco and New York City are. But you would think that cities and communities that struggle with this would be building all kinds of affordable housing. But that doesn't seem to be the case. No, it's not. You know, it's it's a puzzle to me that a lot of cities, uh, and I, I would include Columbus and its suburbs in this, 
they have California style zoning, Boston style zoning, but they expect different results. Now, if demand stays low enough, then prices will stay low, right? So if you're talking about a real small town without a lot of jobs, probably you're never gonna have San Francisco prices. Uh, but if you wanna grow your economy, if you wanna have great jobs that with great pay, and then you say, oh, but now you all have to bid against each other uh, or move an hour away and, and drive through traffic, uh, you're going to end up with much higher prices if you follow the same patterns of uh, low density exclusionary zoning that we all copied from New York and Berkeley. And speaking of, well, actually to pivot a little away from zoning, I first want to talk about how we define a tiny home. Because when you think, I think everybody has a different definition of what tiny is, but it actually turns out it really depends on what the law in your community says for minimum square footage for a dwelling. Yes. So I think of tiny homes as being um, something like a hobbyist community or a, um, a unique kind of creative new building product that's really aimed at uh, building something that's modern and nice, but for, you know, a single dweller or maybe, maybe, uh, two people. Uh, obviously, lots of our ancestors lived in, you know, little tiny shacks and, you know, wherever they were peasants or uh, serfs and, you know, put 12 people in a room on a dirt floor, right? That's that's where we all were 500,000 years ago. Nobody's talking about going back to that, thankfully. But what if you could have the amenities of, you know, a teeny tiny uh, oven that cooks a meal for one? and a little bunk bed under which you've got your desk. And actually in my neighborhood, a couple of years ago, we had uh, a neighbor who actually worked at a, our local you know, organic grocery. Uh, she parked her tiny home, she lived in it, uh, right beside her workplace uh, with her daughter. And she actually gave tours because she built it herself. So it was this beautiful kind of panel wood. She obviously a labor of love. She spent years building and was really happy to show it off to the community. Um, I don't know where she's living now. So that was a movable tiny home. There's others that are fixed. So I, I don't think there's a strict definition, but I think of them as being kind of functionally or fundamentally different than just a small starter home because they're trying to do something different architecturally and trying to fill a different niche. So it's not just a small house. It's more like a cottage. It's just something that's trying to be as minimal as possible. Yeah, and one data point that I want to get your take on is that the average size of the American home has been increasing, well, up until 2015. It was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So for comparison, in 1980, the median square footage for a new-built house was about 1,600 square feet. By 2015, that was 2,500 square feet. Now, it's dropped back down a little bit to about 2,200 so this is sort of the inverse of that, right? Like if the average home now is bigger than we're talking about homes that are like almost 10 times smaller in some cases. Yeah, right. So a tiny home is often only 400 square feet, 300 even. So so I don't think I don't think the tiny home is a harbinger of where we're all going. Um, the reality is the pandemic uh, opened up the opportunity for a lot more people to work from home, a lot more kids to homeschool. And it means that a lot of us are spending more of our days at home and we want more residential space. So a big part of the reason that the housing cost crisis went national is that people all over the country just started spending more time at home. 
and that that meant we wanted bigger places. We wanted to sort of you know split up. Two roommates would split up and each get their own apartment. Families would want one more bedroom so they could have a home office, and so that sort of put a crunch in in housing demand. I suspect we'll see those average new home size numbers tick back up because home builders are obviously trying to meet uh, families where they are, and and that's just a, the reality of post pandemic living is. You know, half the days I'm in the office here where I'm, I'm speaking to you from and half the days I'm at home. Do you think that smaller somehow equates to less successful or less desirable in our culture? I mean, there's certainly that attitude, right? That like supersize everything. Bigger is better. Right. I think tiny homes are, are really directly leaning against that because they're not just trying to be a smaller version of a house. They're trying to uh, distill the essence of a house into an architecturally different product. So I think they're interesting for that reason. And whenever I've seen them, they're, they're really lovely. And um, there's, a, there's obviously a quaintness. I mean, the other thing that's important, if you're talking not about a movable tiny home, but one that's fixed, that has its own lot, or someone owns the land, is that you know, for all time, humans have added to their houses and changed them over time. So there's a new subdivision in near San Antonio, Texas, which is just a typical American subdivision, but with very, very small houses. And the, the, the understanding is you'll buy this and maybe in 10 years, you'll build an addition or you'll, mm. you'll add a garage or you'll pop up the top and have a second story loft, which lets your family grow and change with time. It lets the new buyer, when you sell, do something different. So that's a whole other element. And there's this, this really interesting research on uh, how buildings change over time. You should never think of everything is being static, right? Great buildings change. And you see that in some communities. So I used to live in Denver, Colorado, and that was a very big thing. People would get into these tiny downtown, like 1900s bungalows. And then it turned out because housing was going up and up and up so quickly that it was cheaper to build an addition than it was to actually move. Yeah, that makes sense. And when you're in on really prime land like that, uh, it makes sense to use that land more intensely and, and be able to to share it with others, whether that's family or, or roommates or renters. So I also want to talk about small homes quickly with you. And that would be what I'd categorize as probably about 900 square feet to about 1,500 square feet, what we might think of as startle, starter homes. And to me, these are also really difficult to build. I have watched sort of development in my area. And when builders suggest starter homes or townhouses or duplexes, uh, nimbyism comes out in full force. Yeah. So I, this is this is a really interesting thing. So I, I looked in the preparation for this chat, I looked at the zoning in uh, Newark, Ohio, where this really creative tiny home development is being proposed. And there's two problems. First, I think the site that, as far as I can tell, they want to build it on is zoned commercial. So there's a there's that hassle of why do we say that you know on this side of a line you can build houses on that side of the line you can't even though it's literally you know the, these would be adjacent to other houses. And secondly, even what they call high density there requires a quarter acre uh, for a new subdivided lot. A quarter acre is not dense by I think any reasonable definition. But what it means is that if you're a builder, you're looking at a big piece of land, and so you've got that fixed cost. And how do you sort of pair your land with your structure? And usually, bigger goes with bigger. A bigger lot gets a bigger home, which means you're spreading that land cost over more house square footage. And the truth is, house square footage is what people really pay for. They don't pay that much 
for additional yard spaces. There's some folks who really love a big yard and that's great and you know, I have more power to them, but the average buyer isn't willing to put much money down to get a bigger yard. So if you've got a big lot and you're a builder, you're gonna put a pretty big house on. And until we just allow builders to take a piece of land, subdivide it and put small houses on small lots, those will always be scarce and relatively overpriced per square foot. So, you know, that's a thing that we have to do through our zoning codes. If we want to have starter homes and opportunities for seniors to downsize, we should be zoning to allow uh, houses on essentially arbitrarily small lots. There's, there's no research anywhere showing that people are harmed by having small yards and we have all these regulations that are just completely untethered from any sort of public safety or health benefit. As long as you've got a sewer, it does not matter how big your yard is. It makes me think of traditional city lots or what they call like postage stamp front yards. That's kind of what we're talking about in terms of size, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, people talk about square footage. I think it's actually easier if you know a neighborhood to think about the, the, the width of the frontage. Right? How many steps does it take you to pass a house um, and to get to the next house? And so it might be, say, a 50-foot frontage would be a pretty typical American post-war suburb. Um, in a city lot, you might be as narrow as 20 feet, where you're looking at like a townhouse uh, or maybe a detached townhouse with a little, a little walkway to bring the trash cans between the two houses. Um, yeah, that's probably down in like German Village here. For folks, yes. they've got a lot of colonial homes. They're very beautiful. They're very close together with narrow alleyways. Um, I think the other big hurdle will be zoning for minimum square footage. So I was looking it up. Ohio doesn't have a statewide standard for minimum square footage, or at least not one I could find. It seems to be left to the cities, and they're all over the place. So Cleveland, for example, requires homes to be at least 950 square feet, which is the size of two tiny houses. Yeah, you know, most builders are going to build well above that. But then again, there's no health or safety reason why a person who wants to live alone in a cottage needs 950 square feet. You know, my, my mother spends every minute she can at a little cabin in Maine, which is much smaller than 950 square feet, and she loves every little tiny square foot of it. Uh, there's no There's no risk. There's nothing bad that's going to happen to you from being in a a studio apartment sized cottage. Um, and as my mother would tell you, can be quite delightful. And if you think apartments don't have the same level of restriction, you can get like a five, 600 square foot one bedroom, a 500 square foot studio here. And so we do permit that kind of living, but it's usually in apartment or condo. Right. Which isn't for everyone. And, and also doesn't make sense to build from construction cost point of view. If you're in a smaller community, uh, you know, stick built, two by two by four type construction. Um, there's lower fire safety standards, right, for separated dwellings because obviously fire is not going to spread uh, as easily among them. So you can uh, save money on the construction techniques relative to building an apartment building. And I think a lot of people, you know, we value independence, and it shouldn't be the case that you can only have independence or choose the outside color of your house or plant flowers if you want to buy a 1,500 square foot home. So tiny home villages are springing up all across the country. Um, what role do you see them playing in making housing more affordable? It sounds like they're just one piece of the puzzle. Yeah, uh, they are literally a small piece of the puzzle. Um, <laughs> right. Most 
most households, that's not going to be, uh, you know, the solution. Um, I think the kind of the starter home in that 1,000 to 1,500 square foot range, that's going to be more important, uh, especially as we have a population that is sort of permanently older, where we've got more people who are healthy and spending a lot of years, um, you know, post-work and with a probably a lower income, not necessarily needing to be near their jobs. They might want to move somewhere versus where they were when they were working. Um, the ability to build those in attractive places could be really valuable. And, um, you know, I think that look, the big gains, if, if we're going to solve the housing crisis, we have to do what we have the muscles for. America has learned how to do a handful of things really well. We do uh, mid-rise multifamily really well, and we do single-family subdivisions really well. And we're able to produce those at pretty low costs at pretty large scale. If we're going to build enough housing for the generation that's growing up and looking for housing now, it's going to be mostly in those typologies. I, I totally agree that we should learn and build muscles for other things, uh, but we are not, we do not have the luxury now of waiting till we figure out uh, a bunch of cool creative stuff. We need to zone for um, small lot, single family homes that we know how to build, zone for mid-rise multifamily that we know how to build and let those builders get to work. That was Salim Firth, director of the Urbanity Project and senior research fellow at George Mason University. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks. It's great to be on. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're talking with the director of Newark's proposed tiny home community. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. We're talking tiny homes this hour and their ability to provide affordable housing and possibly address the housing shortage. Newark's Lookup Center, a faith-based nonprofit, is proposing a tiny home community for Licking County. And Lori Hubble is the executive director who joins us now. Welcome to All Sides, Lori. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So let's start with uh, some basics for here in Ohio. How small does a house have to be to be a tiny home here in the state of Ohio? You know, I don't really know the answer to that. Um, the houses that we are hoping are proposing are um, five to 600 square feet. So probably bigger than what you would traditionally think of as a tiny home, but still pretty small. Yes. And how many proposed units are in this plan? So in this plan, this is sort of a pilot program. We have a green space that we own next to uh, the building that we operate out of. And in that green space is really just kind of a blank space where nothing happens. And we thought, you know, we, we are seeing the need for housing so much more than even in the past. So we just kind of got our heads together and thought, what if we could start 
just a small tiny home movement in the space that we have available, which would be six homes, um, three two-story homes with two bedroom and three single-story homes with one bedroom. And it would be called Grace Landing. That's the proposed yeah. name for it. And it what's fascinating to me is I didn't realize that the median home price in Licking County had gotten so expensive. Like I know fundamentally that it's really expensive here in Columbus in the Franklin County core, but y'all are looking at home prices like at 300,000 for a median. Yes. I think as most people know in the state of Ohio, uh, Licking County is just booming with, you know, the Intel, um, Facebook, Google, Amazon. It's really becoming a hub of employment and thus creating a housing shortage like nothing we've seen in the past. Yeah, and so these tiny homes would be well below that $300,000 price point? Yes, well below that price point, of course, yes. And these homes would be purchase opportunities and not rental opportunities, which I think is important to share. And we're seeing a lot more people um, in retirement age that are being displaced from homes they've rented for long periods of time because of rent increasing four to 500 a month on short notice. And so would there be income restrictions for those who want to purchase them? Because this is in such a beginning stage, I I don't want to say it would be um, for low income. I think it would be for anyone, honestly, that is um, working and, you know, have been trying to find a home, I guess, kind of, you know, not saved up enough money to purchase a home um, because of multiple things that could happen when you're trying to save and living paycheck to paycheck. Um, It could also be, like I said, and I can give several examples, but of people who are um, retirement age who have had massive increases in their rent, and now they find themselves with an income, but not enough to support an increase in their rent where they are. Yeah, you hear that from homeowners, too, whose property taxes keep going up and up as their values increase, and it's sort of being priced out of your own home. Right. Um, So how what has been the community reaction to this proposal? So we are a faith-based nonprofit that's um, a community center that offers a lot of different things in our location. Um, And so... I thought that the community response would be more positive, but I think there's some fear of, you know, what does this bring? Are you screening people? How will it affect our property values to have this little community next door when I have a house that's, you know, 2000 square feet? I'm just kind of trying to work through those things. I hope that it can be in the space that we're in because we have so many resources. Um, So many people are one car you know, breakdown from not being able to get to work and they can't get to work. So now they lost their job. So now they can't fix their car and that kind of scenario. And at the lookup center, we have so many training programs. We have a transportation program. So if your car breaks down that morning and you're an owner of one of the tiny homes, you can call and say, my car's not running this morning. Can you get me to work? It's being able to help people stay above, you know, the, the water and not sink below by, um, you know, really providing it a hand up and, and, helping people help themselves. So um, we hope to host it in this space, but the neighbors aren't favorable. We've had two meetings and they have not been uh, well (laughs) uh, accepted, I guess. But we have also had some partners reach out to us and say, you know, we love the idea. We have some property. Maybe somehow we can partner with, with putting these homes here. And another idea would be we have a skilled trades training program called STEP 
where we teach electrical and construction trades. Um, and we're hoping that maybe if nothing else, somehow we need to contribute to the housing shortage. So maybe it would be that we build a model home through our trades students um, and the students who've graduated over the past five years in the class. And maybe that would be a fundraiser for us going you know, in the future. We're really open to how do we just help with the housing um, shortage? We would love to start a movement in this space next to us, but if that's not something that moves forward, we do have some other options. Is it just, do you feel like perhaps it's a concern that the people who would occupy tiny homes are somehow, I don't know, it feels like it's almost synonymous with, like you must have done something wrong to end up there. I'm not saying that's fair or that's the right way to think about people who would purchase these, but I, I noticed a lot in my own community, there was a proposed development behind where I live and they were originally proposing uh, apartment units like condos and they were going to put in a pool and our community would have been able to use the pool, like to go walk and use it as sort of like a, hey, we're doing this, you should share. And like my neighbors rioted to the point where now they're just building big single family homes. Yes, I think there is maybe some stigma behind it, but it is such a movement, you know, toward the future. Um, honestly, like partly how this came to my mind, one is we need to utilize the green space for good and, and it does belong to us. And I think that would be a great way to do it. But also uh, my husband and I lived in a camper for 18 months recently, and that was about 200 square feet <laughs> So um, while we were rehabbing a house. And so I realized that any place can be home. You know, you can make any place home. Um, a house is just a house, but a home is a home. And um, some of the neighbors have called and said, how do we get on a wait list? This is like really a great opportunity. I wouldn't be able to own a home otherwise if this opportunity weren't available. So I do think it's a it's a mindset, like you said. Some people see it as, oh my gosh, this is a great way to start. You know, a lot of people don't want to start with a big house that they have to manage and a yard that they have to manage. This would be more like a condo community. So Grace Landing would be responsible for the upkeep of the outside of the homes and the yard and, you know, all of the flowers and those kinds of things. But the tenants, obviously, the owners would be responsible for managing the inside. But I, I think it can go both ways. We've had both sides. People are excited and people are, that think like what you just said, I don't want this in my neighborhood. It will devalue my home. Closer to home here is Vista Village, a tiny home community for the homeless on Columbus's southeast side. It's scheduled to open this year, and I just want to let folks know we invited them to participate this hour, but they couldn't make it. So in case you're wondering about Vista Village and why we haven't included them this hour, I just want to make it clear that we gave them the opportunity. But back to Newark, uh, what is your timeline? I know you guys are very early stage, but ideally, would you like to have these available by the time Intel opens its plant? Um, so we've been working on this actually for about a year. Um, we have done some of the preliminary things as far as, um, separating, uh, you know, Grace Landing is its own nonprofit. Um, we have our own parking and, uh, we have done the survey for the property. Some preliminary things have already taken place to think that we could move forward this year, I think is it really has to, it's really going to depend on whether we're able to do it there or we partner with someone else. Um, because we don't take any government funding of any kind, it's all supported by donors in our community or investors in our community. Um, so it would depend on when people are ready to make that investment and where that might 
where that might be, whether it's next to look up or it's somewhere else. And the next to look up that property is, is it zoned commercial? I, that was my understanding. So is there a rezoning that has to take place? We do have to go through rezoning. And that's exactly why I wanted to meet with the neighbors first. And I wanted to think about, you know, we want to be a good neighbor. If it was, if it was being a, a topic for my own neighborhood, I would want to know about it before I found out that there's a zoning meeting about it. So that's partly why we've had a couple of meetings um, and we'll probably continue to have some more just to be able to reassure people of what the thought process is behind it and, you know, and the vetting process that's going to go into it. Have you given any thought to having a model home or I, I just kind of wonder, cause they, I've walked through some of these at different shows or events or places I've been to. And I think sometimes people are surprised by how cute they are for lack of a better word. Yes. So kind of like if you build it, they will come. <laughs> yes, we we are, are hoping and we are planning to do a model home that's not um, attached to any kind of plumbing or electrical. Those things will be in the home, but not, you know, set on the property, not not making neighbors think we're going to go ahead with it. Um, and that was part of what I said. If if we can't come to an agreement where it could maybe be someone somewhere else or next to us, um, that our our students in our trades class and also past students would come back as well as some uh, volunteers who are already willing to invest in this and and um, businesses that are willing to invest in it and and build a model home that people can actually see and that can be movable to another space. But just for people to to grasp the concept of it. Yeah, because I think sometimes we have this idea of what they're going to look like. And then you get inside and they're so stylized and designed well. And I don't know, for me personally, I just like looking at all the different ways in which they've put storage in weird places. Oh, yeah, there are some really um, unique ideas. I mean, they definitely utilize all the space in a home that that's that size. Our hope is to be able to provide homes for one to two people or three to four people. Um, and that's why we did the, the two story model as well. The actual footprint will still only be, you know, would only be 300 square foot because of the the second story. But to be able to create a two bedroom option, even though it's still small, I think would be unique for our community and also allow a single mom with kids or a single dad or, you know, a small family. Do you know if the community is going to include any um, communal spaces? Like, are you hoping to put like a playground or a little like park benches or something in the space or is it still too early stage? Yes. So we already have a playground because the building we uh, inhabit is an old elementary school. So we do have a nice playground and we're planning, we would be planning to privatize that playground. Um, We also have in the drawings, a green space for uh, community, you know, bonfires, gardens, bees, um, and, you know, some sort of uh, sustainability as far as honey and vegetables and things like that for the community. That was Lori Hubble, Executive Director of the Lookup Center. And we'll have to check back with you as the plans for this tiny home community get underway. But thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to speak with the Project Director of Bluff Street Village, a tiny home community in Toledo that's been up and operating since 2020. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News.
This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. We're talking this hour about Ohio's tiny home communities, where they are, where they're coming, and whether they can provide affordable housing. Last year, the tiny home community of Bluff Street Village in Toledo welcomed new residents. The village's first groundbreaking took place in 2020. It's one of several tiny home communities being built across the United States. And joining us now is Larry Clark, the the project director of Bluff Street Village and a pastor at Monroe Street United Methodist Church. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you very much. So tell me about Bluff Street Village. Where is it located in Toledo and where did the idea come from? Well, it's located on Bluff Street, as the uh, (laughs) the name suggests. Uh, Bluff Street is uh, a street in an inner city urban neighborhood in which all the houses over time had either burned down or been torn down. It was basically an empty block uh, of an urban street. And so it's located uh, uh, just off of a main street, which is uh, Monroe Street in Toledo, which is a main thoroughfare. And so you looked at this empty street and thought, tiny houses. Well, yeah, we were looking uh, for some time to figure out what what do we do to try to do some revitalization in the Monroe-Auburn neighborhood where we're located. And uh, we were aware of a project in Detroit called Cass Community Tiny Homes. We visited there multiple times with different, different people to see what they were doing. And we believed that their model would work for us in Toledo. And so there are six homes now, is that correct? We have completed our sixth house, um, soon to have our sixth resident. And uh, we have 14 more lots on the street to uh, work with, which are either owned by us or owned by uh, the Lucas County Land Bank, which is, um, we have an agreement with that they will turn over lots to us as we're ready to build. And so you're fundraising for these, correct, right? Because you raise the funds, you build the house, and then you, you sell it to the residents or how do they how do they get the house so the concept is to work with them over a period of time uh, assuming most of them have not been homeowners before because they're very low-income individuals Um, so we rent to them for seven years and then at the end of the seventh year after having um, 10 monthly tenant association meetings we also require that they uh, give 10 hours a month community service uh, that they will be ready to be full homeowners and we will turn the houses over to them. Um, But we do have to raise the money up front. The rent that they pay does not cover the cost of the houses. Uh, So we have to raise all the money up front. We've done so through a variety of means. Um, We've gotten grants, we've gotten individual contributions. So it's, it's always ongoing, um, fundraising efforts to try to um, get the money necessary to build the houses. And I should say, these are complete houses. Um, a lot of tiny home communities, um, it may be a 
just a, a four square walls with some kind of heat and maybe some electricity. And sometimes they have shared bathrooms or shared kitchens or something like that. These are complete houses that um, have a, a great room, which has a full-size kitchen. It also is a place where you have your bed and, and living space um, and a, uh, um, a bathroom that's complete with a stacking washer and dryer. Yeah, and if you haven't seen them or you're curious, you can Google Bluff Street Village. And I, I actually like looked at some pictures of them online and they're surprisingly cute and they're all different designs and different colors. Like it just looks like a miniature version of a regular neighborhood. Absolutely. And one of the things we determined early on, we wanted to have uh, large covered front porches so that people can sit out front, uh, that you can really have a sense of the uh, what communities used to be when people used to sit on their front porches. Um, and how big are these tiny houses? Uh, they're 400 square feet, um, and they're fully accessible. As another thing we decided to do is make these uh, available to folks either to age in place or folks that have disabilities that they can move around in these houses quite easily. There's no steps. The, uh, the, the whole design is to enable people to with disabilities to live in these houses, and what including is... showers that you can even take a wheelchair into. Oh, what has the demand been like since you started offering these to people? Well, every time we get some publicity, I get inundated with people who want to apply. I mean, there's really no shortage of people who would be happy to live in these houses. Um, in the Midwest, the, the it's kind of a misnomer that people want to live in something smaller. Um, if 400 square feet in Manhattan probably rents for 3,500 a month. Yeah. So, and people would be happy to have it. <laughs> but in in the Midwest, you, a lot of people think these are too small, um, but they're like an efficiency apartment and um, they've got a big kitchen and uh, people can live quite well in these houses. What has the community reaction been? We spoke with the woman who's planning the Newark tiny home community and she said, you know, some of the neighbors in the bigger houses were not thrilled by the idea. Um, we have had nothing but a positive response from our neighborhood. It's a neighborhood that hasn't seen any new construction probably in 40 years or more. And so to see something new going up is, is uh, makes folks a little bit excited. Um, um, we try to protect our residents from people who are gawkers, <laughs> but <laughs> people drive down the street all the time just to look at the houses. So why why tiny houses in particular? Why not build, say, 800 square foot, 900 square foot, which would still be pretty small homes? Well, one of the problems is that the lots are, are small lots that used to have houses that were 1,600 square feet or more on them, but the building codes of today won't allow that to happen. Uh, and so... If you're going to build in an older neighborhood, you almost have to have two lots uh, to build a house. And uh, by building small houses, we can make them meet the uh, 
requirements of today's uh, building codes. Um, oh, is that like for distance between homes and those kinds of things? Distance between homes, the amount of of hard surface per the size of the lot, um, those kinds of things. Uh, um, we're we're trying to do something in Toledo to change some of the building regulations that that keep us from building houses in urban neighborhoods. Uh, in some ways, the building code reflects suburban standards rather than uh, what, what cities typically did. Uh, we heard that in the, the first segment. We were talking with a professor who studies housing, and he said a lot of times this like low-density suburban-style zoning ends up dominating in a lot of these areas. Right. And so... Um, one way to get around it is just to build uh, small houses. <laughs> uh, that's. Did you have any restrictions on how small you could go? So, does the city of Toledo say require a minimum square footage for a home? Uh, I don't know. Um, we we just decided early on we were going to make all of our houses four hundred square feet. Detroit has some that are as small as 250 square feet. Um, yeah, we I, didn't choose to go that route. We decided to standard all of ours. Yeah, I just asked because the city of Cleveland, which I found really fascinating in researching for this episode, is that the city of Cleveland, it's 950 square feet is the minimum you're allowed to build for a standalone dwelling. And that's that's pretty big. I mean, in well, terms of tiny what, houses. Yeah, well, I wonder if you can build them on a standard uh, city lot in Cleveland. I mean, they may have boxed themselves into a corner. Yeah, it seems like the more uh, I learn about tiny homes, the more I'm learning about community zoning and local rules for for building and construction because it, it's pretty tied. It seems pretty tied to to how small you can go, how close you can be to other homes, even how small the lots can be. Like some places won't let you build on lots smaller than a quarter acre. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's that's what suburbs do. I mean, they just, that, and that's one of the ways they keep out um, people who want to build affordable housing. It's, it's, uh, it's clearly designed to do that. So you now have five, almost six residents. Uh, how's it been going since they've been living in their homes? Well, it, it, we we did have uh, one resident who left, um, and uh, but other than that, we've been all the residents uh, seem to be doing pretty well. Um, they each come with their own unique uh, uh, issues. Um, have any of, of them been homeowners before or no? I don't believe any of them have been homeowners before. Um, and I, I think four of the five are on disability of some mm. kind, which does, again, speak to uh, the need for housing for folks who have some uh, disabilities. And if folks are looking, if, you know, somebody is listening and would like to donate to help you build your seventh tiny house, uh, how do they find you? Uh, they can just go to the uh, bluffstreetvillage.org uh, app, and there's uh, information you can donate online. There's information of how you can send a, send a check. 
And long term, once you have these 20, do you think you want to build more or are you going to be set with the ones on Bluff Street? Well, we we have thought about how we can do more. I mean, our goal is not just to provide housing for low-income folks and create homeowners. We're trying to redevelop a neighborhood. And there's, there's plenty of vacant lots all over the neighborhood. So we're, we've got some thoughts that we might move up to the next street over and try to do some infill over there, maybe with some houses that are a little bit larger. Um, yeah, that's- It is part of a- bigger plan to, to try to see urban neighborhoods come back. Yeah, because it's one of those questions I'm sure you get is why not rehab some of the old buildings? But it sounds like in a lot of cases, the old buildings don't exist anymore. I think that our study of the neighborhood suggested that 30, 40 percent of the land is vacant. So they've torn down whatever used so to be there. It's you need to, to you need to fill in too. Um, a street that has lots of empty lots on it is not very attractive. Um, our Habitat for Humanity in Toledo is doing a lot of rehab, and uh, um, we haven't moved that direction yet. Now, the other piece of this project is we're uh, going to open a tool library. Um, oh, I've summer. heard about these. These are so neat. Yeah, and um, so we sort of a self-defense had to buy an old gas station that was right behind uh, our houses on Bluff Street. Um, and then we decided that use that then to create a tool library so, so folks could borrow tools to maybe do some work on their property that they might not otherwise be able to afford to do. Rather than spending money on, a, on renting tools or buying tools, they can spend it on the materials they need. Is the and, uh, tool library open to, or will it be open to anyone in the community? Like not just yes. the tiny home folks? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard of these. I think there's one somewhere in Franklin County. I need to investigate that more, but I've always thought it was really fascinating. So like if you need a circular saw, you go and check it out the way you check out a book rather than paying whatever the fee is to say like a Home Depot or Menards to rent it for a couple hours. Correct. No, I think that's, that's neat, especially because when you're talking about tiny homes, you might want to, say, retile your kitchen, but you, you don't have a garage to keep a, a, a tile saw in. Certainly, you don't have the space for specialty equipment like that. Well, that's right. And uh, that's one of the things our residents are getting used to. They don't have a lot of storage space. Um, you have to live simply. Yeah, as somebody... I, I spent uh, a couple years living in New York City in, in, a, in a studio apartment that was right around 250 square feet. And you get very, very creative at how you store your items or just what items you want to keep inside your home. Right, right. It now seems so we, insane to me as somebody who lives in a big, sprawling suburban house of 2,000 square feet that I lived in like a tenth of that size for a while. Yes, yes. So uh, one of the things we're able to do, for, at least for the residents, is they've been able to borrow tools, even though the library's not open. They have a weed whip and a few other things like that that, uh, that they can borrow. There's a leaf blower. Oh, yeah, so, that would be important. Yeah, so they, they actually have an advantage because they can walk 
across the alley and, and borrow tools. Do they have any kind of garage or covered parking or off-street parking? Um, all six of the houses have a parking pad that comes off the alley behind the house. Mm. And there would be on-street parking. But um, of our residents, I would I think only two of them have a vehicle. Oh, okay. Um, and so that'd be very typical of the folks that we're, we see living in these houses. They probably will not have a vehicle. Uh, one of the advantages of where we're located, however, it's on a main bus route. would enable them to get to um, a lot of the major stores and groceries. And what I find fascinating is just the different reaction. So in talking with the folks in Newark that is experiencing sort of explosive growth right now, and they're trying to to you know mitigate the rising cost of home prices and they're getting pushback on this idea whereas in Toledo you guys are sort of being welcomed in a community that needs rehab it's it's really interesting to see the two sort of polar opposite reactions given the different circumstances well I think it has to do with what the design is and what what your intent is a lot of uh, tiny home communities are really for uh, homeless people and these houses are really for folks sort of a step above that, that, that have been fairly stable, but have never had the opportunity for home ownership, never had the opportunity to, um, to live in a place of their own. Typically, they're going to, I think most of our folks came from apartments somewhere. Well, that was Larry Clark, the project director of Bluff Street Village and a pastor at Monroe Street United Methodist Church. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, you're quite welcome. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for this big hour on Tiny Homes on All Sides with Anna Staver. Thank you so much for listening on 89.7 NPR News.